0: Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of 20 Minute Fitness. Today we have another one of our co-hosted episodes and I really hope you enjoyed the first one and you're enjoying the mini episodes that we've been putting out, t- obviously taking the podcast in a new direction. If you are enjoying the episodes then please do not forget to subscribe on whichever podcast player you are listening to your podcast on and leave us a rating and review. It really does help us understand whether you're enjoying the new episodes we are delivering. Before we introduce today's guest, a massive thank you to our sponsor Shape. As you Shape are building a 3D body scanning scale called ShapeScale. So you simply step on the device and a robotic arm will move all around your body, capturing all sorts of body data. The data is then transferred to the Shape app, and via the app, you'll be able to see a photorealistic avatar of your body in three dimensions along with the quantitative data. That is your body fat percentage, your lean muscle mass, and your muscle girth measurements. So it really does make ShapeScale a truly comprehensive. Fitness tracker giving you a visual and also the data as well. So definitely check it out. It's available for pre order at shapescale.com. So for today's episode, we have a world renowned lecturer and expert in spine function, injury prevention, and rehabilitation. We have Professor Stuart McGill from the University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada, joining us today. Professor McGill has written more than 200 scientific publications on the topics of lumbar function, low back injury mechanisms investigation of tissue loading during rehabilitation programs and the formulation of work-related injury avoidance strategies. He's received several awards for his work and has dedicated 32 years to investigating how the spine works the mechanisms of pain and proven ways to eliminate pain and restore pain-free activity. So without further ado, we will we'll let Stuart introduce himself and give some more background. Stuart, thank you very much in advance for taking the time to talk to us today. Great to have you on the show. If you could start off by telling us a bit about yourself and what it is you do, that would be great.
1: Okay, well Charlie, I was a professor of spine biomechanics at the University of Waterloo for just over 30 years. I'm now retired. Our first question, 30 years ago was how does the spine work? Something quite simple. And uh, over the years, that expanded and morphed into what are the injury mechanisms and pathways to pain? uh, What are the best ways to prevent uh, back pain if there is such a, a possibility and rehabilitate it when prevention fails? And then we started a experimental clinic at the university. And it's an interesting story. I started setting aside two hour appointments for back pained people. And my colleague, Said uh, you're nuts. What are you going to do for two hours? No one, no one does that. And I said, well, two hours is the only way I know to start to get to understand the person. I asked them to tell me their story, a very open-ended interview to start, and then I got to very learn very specific questions to understand why they'd failed in the past. And I'm doing pattern recognition. There's no such thing as non-specific back pain. It's all very specific. So I was trying to subcategorize as I was listening to their stories, and then I would take them into the testing area where we would purposefully cause their pain and we would uh, note the motions, the postures, the loads, the directions, the repetitions, the durations, etc. that caused their pain. And then we would isolate it down to different mechanical combinations and then eventually to different body parts, uh, etc. Well, after two years, we changed those appointments to three hours. They are unheard of. So all of our clinical colleagues who provide procedures never quite got That to assess a person, which wasn't something they were paid to do, it deserves at least three hours. because we weren't paid for procedures we were paid for the clinical outcome efficacy which was a very very different model anyway I'm now retired and uh, I get asked by mostly athletes from around the world would I see them so they come to my house (laughs) and I give them my opinion so that that's the, the long and short of it
0: it definitely sounds like you do some very comprehensive analysis and obviously it is needed as you mentioned to really pinpoint what exactly is is causing that pain before the interview really kicked off you and I were discussing back pain, what are the causes, have I ever suffered from it, being an athlete myself, playing a lot of rugby and doing a lot of gym work. I mentioned that I had passed from doing deadlifts, and I wasn't really sure what this was from. Was it from the deadlift or something else? And you know, I couldn't really work out what had caused it. So what I'm really interested to know is to dive into what it is that often causes back pain.
1: Well, first of all, there's no such thing as non-specific back pain. It's very, very specific. So when you tell me that you caused pain through a deadlift, right away, I've started to create a hypothesis in my mind as to what it could be. But there are two scientific principles to lay down first. The first one is everything in biology has a tipping point. Load applied to your body has a tipping point. When you're under the tipping point, it builds your body. It makes you strong, makes you mm-hmm. endurable, faster, and everything else is an athlete. But when you cross the tipping point, you get injured and pained, uh, etc. But now here's the rub the load that is the stimulus for adaptation that you're trying to create to create better athleticism is a component of the magnitude, the size of the load, the duration that it's applied, the repetition, but it's all modulated by rest. So somewhere, if you cause pain that wasn't only muscular, it was actually something more substantial that it will accumulate over time and a- actually cause you disability as an athlete. You can't do the things. You can't train because you're in pain. You've crossed the tipping point. So I, I will also say that if I take a population approach to all of This. Different sports have different clusters of injuries. If I said to a clinician, Who are the athletes walking in with spondylolisthesis? The first type of athlete out of their mouth will probably be gymnasts. There's a reason for the loaded full range of motion and stress strain reversals on a bone called the pars bone, which will eventually stress crack and uh, uh, break. It is a function of the applied load crossing the tipping point. I can give you a specific example with deadlifting, for example. When you cross the tipping point, you create microfracturing of the trabeculae which are the small network of bones underneath the end plates of the vertebra. That's probably in most people the first site of tissue damage. You can't see it on an MRI. I've only seen it with micro CT and dissection when I do it to cadavers, obviously, after we, we, we mimic a compressive load from a deadlift that crosses the tipping point. But now here's the question. Was that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, how can an injury be a good thing? When the injury occurs at a microscopic level, the bone heels, and calluses, and actually become stronger. So you just adapted bone. And when you look at the grand old men and, and women of powerlifting, which is the sport who are the experts in deadlifting, yep. they have what, what are called sclerotic bone, very dense, heavy bone across the end plates. And that's been adapted from years of microfracturing. but they were very clever. They stayed underneath the tipping point. When you look at the training regimens of the typical grand old men and women that I'm talking about, they're setting world records in their 30s and into their 40s, they're still so strong, they will train heavy deadlifts and then take five or six days off. So the average athlete would look at them and say they're under-trained, not realizing that that's what's required to lay down a bony callus over the micro-fractures. Now, I'm going to take the other side of the argument. I said that's a good thing, but now I'm going to say it's a bad thing. When the person trains like a bodybuilder three times a week, those micro-fractures, instead of callusing over, do the opposite. They start to accumulate. Accumulate, And then you will see, typically, several things happening. You, you might get a crack in the end plate in a Schmorl's node. The nucleus of the disc escapes the disc and squirts down into the vertebral body. You end up with a disc height loss. That flattened disc now has a loss of stiffness and micro-movement. So if you did a Pell-Off press... Or you're on the rugby pitch and you had a, a plant of the left foot and a sharp cut to the right. And you get a shot of back pain. When you start getting shots of pain with specific movements and, and specific postures, that's usually a sign of instability and in micro movements. But the joint has lost stiffness. So do you see how it's a bit of a house of cards? But if if that scenario was uh, one that was emerging as I was interviewing the person, I say, you know, do you ever get a sharp pain in your back when you roll over in bed? I would start then when I took them into the clinic probing their back to see if little micro movements without muscle bracing, no stiffness, just a quiet back like they're laying in bed. Does that mimic that shot of pain? And then I'll say, uh, stiffen. Now we coach that. I might say, pull your shoulder blades down towards your pelvis by activating your pecs and lats. Every rugby player knows exactly what I'm talking about. They might say, oh, now you just took away the pain when you probed my back. Good, we just found a way to stiffen out the pain. Or they might say, oh, that made my pain worse. And I would say, good. I would poke my fingers into the lateral obliques and I'd say, don't suck in, push my fingers out. And then I'd repeat the shearing load that I'm using to provoke the pain. And then they say, oh, you just took my pain away. So we then converge in the clinic by creating their pain with very specific loads in very specific postures. And then we then work on a strategy. What was required to take the pain away? And it usually is a a subtle change in posture because posture migrates stress from one tissue in the body to another away from the pain structure. And then we would also modulate stiffness. Those are for the micro movements that are occurring. Maybe that flattened disc will now bulge. They are using far too much motion uh, instead of a good hip hinge when they're deadlifting, they're rounding too much, for example, et cetera, et cetera. So it just keeps on going and we peel the onion right down so we get a very specific understanding of their pain by the end, and then we can show them unequivocally what is causing their pain in a athlete's lexicon. We can then tell them, when you deadlift in this posture with this load, you are creating your pain However, if you change the load, change your training cycles, adjust the other exercises that are adding to the cumulative load, we will be able to create a training program that is now under the tipping point and we're back in the game. We're rebuilding you rather than cumulatively tearing you down. So that there's a, a rough summary.
0: That's very interesting that you then, after obviously assessing the person that's come to see you with with any injury, that you then create a training programme which will help them avoid those issues in the future. And coming from an athlete as well, it's uh, great to hear that you obviously help them understand it from a less academic point of view, so you know they know exactly what to change in their training regime. But it is amazing that you can distill all this down or unravel an onion, like you said, to really pinpoint what exactly is going on. And it could be from one movement, as you said, but then obviously supported from the other movement. So that, I did find that, that really interesting. So we're talking about training under the tipping point, uh, obviously powerlifters training near the tipping point, but obviously making sure they don't cross it. How do we actually know what our tipping point is and ensure we don't go over it then? If we are looking at this from the context of an athlete who's doing a lot of heavy squats or deadlifts, how can they know what's going to be too much of a load for them? And that might result in some sort of injury.
1: You spend a lifetime becoming a master of the craft. Okay, so if you went to a car mechanic and said, can you tell me how to build a car to win the injury? Indianapolis 500 or uh, an F1 race in Monaco. You'll notice it's the same mechanics who can de- do it year after year. And, and but 99% of car mechanics are absolutely clueless. It's those people who have spent a lifetime mastering the craft. So I, I know it sounds perhaps insurmountable, but you have to understand how the spine works. You have to understand how bones adapt, ligaments and tendons and discs adapt, how muscles adapt, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. You have to know how to migrate tissues through posture change you have to know how to be an outstanding coach you have to be aware of the learning style of the athlete if, if they are you know there are there are strong athletes and then there are those athletes who are naturally quick they have an explosive neurology you will find that when you coach those athletes generally speaking they have a much shorter attention span and you have to get your message across in 20 seconds whereas with another athlete you might be able to coach them for 20 minutes Do, do you see what I mean and this is yeah all coming down and it comes from working with athletes for many years, making a few mistakes. You have to have a clinical sense and you have to have a scientific sense. So it may not be what you want, but that's why we give courses on these things. And then we have a designation of master clinicians. It takes people several years of working, both practicing with athletes as a clinician, understanding the science, and then working with me personally to see one athlete after another. And I have to see that person's efficacy before I can approve them as a uh, master clinician. And it's an awareness of their psychology, their learning style, their anatomy, their neurology, their natural athleticisms. And then you have to know the sport. We map out the demands of every sport. So if you told me you're a rugby player, I would then need to know what position do you play? How many minutes a game do you play? And all these sorts of things. Oh, wow. So I know so I know the demand of the sport. And then I would say, good, now let's measure you. Are Do you have the capabilities to meet all of those demands and still stay under the tipping point? And then we train the difference. It's a very detailed way. It's a very scientifically sound way. It's the only way that I know to create precision programming for an athlete to really remove as, as much risk as possible and enhance as much reward as possible. When you're training an athlete who's a good one, they're close to the tipping point. There's not much margin for error.
0: All about precision then it seems. One thing you mentioned earlier that I wanted to bring it back to is that powerlifters are operating near their tipping point. They often perform sets with a really heavy load and then take six days off of rest if they have one big training session and they can obviously build and develop their bones via, via bone callus as you mentioned and then we said that uh, bodybuilders often training three or four times a week potentially not getting enough rest time and this can be detrimental and lead to injury in your opinion then is there an optimal level of rest that athletes should be having in between the sessions to prevent injury
1: absolutely there is so bodybuilders their mission is to hypertrophy muscle so they tear down the muscle on the training days But muscles are very good at responding. They also respond very well with uh, certain substances, as you know. Bones are a different tissue and quite a different process. I I mean, if you want me to explain the basic science, it'll take two or three minutes. Do you want me to tell you how bones remodel and grow?
0: i will be very interested to hear you. All
1: right. If you take a quartz crystal, so go outside and find some quartz, if they have such a rock in, in northern England where you live. Get two pieces of quartz and rub them together at night, and you'll see a flash of lightning go through the quartz. Quartz is a piezoelectric crystal. When you deform the crystal, it builds a charge. And when you scrape it, it releases the charge because you're changing the strain in the quartz lattice. Bone is also a piezoelectric crystal. It's made up of metallic ions like calcium and magnesium and all these kinds of things. When you bend a bone, it creates an electric piezoelectric charge on the region of highest strain. So if you bent your long forearm bone, Bone, for example, the strain would be on the outside. If you kept doing that, your bones would slowly remodel and it would lay down bone by the piezoelectric charge because that charge attracts negative ions of calcium and magnesium that are floating in the plasma and the blood and all that kind of thing. But here's the rub those free ions, when they attach to the major stress points of the bone with a chemical bond, take four or five days to scaffold in because if you bent the bone again the next day, The chemical bonds are simply that they break off again. So you would have to strengthen the bonds with time. So that's what uh, is a basic bone callusing uh, procedure. That's when you look at real strength athletes. That's how they train. They have quite an intense session and then several days off. But that's how you build bone and connective tissue. I wrote a book called Gift of Injury, and it was the story of Brian Carroll, who had world records in two weight categories for squatting, powerlifting. And uh, he came to me with a horrific fracture of the sacrum and uh, very heavily fractured and broken L5, the bottom vertebrae of the the spine with two uh, disc herniations. I said to him, the only way that I know to get you better, I, I did try kyphoplasty on a cadaveric spine, which is a surgical procedure where you inject the bone full of bone cement and try and shore it up from the inside out. That failed to seal the annulus so the disc was still leaking so i said well let's uh, try bone callusing i will not make you any promises i've only done it before with two or three other strength athletes but there it is and so he committed one year to bone callusing which was he did some stabilization exercise every day to try and gristle the uh, discs of the spine and make them a little bit tougher. And uh, he would do things like a farmer's walk or a suitcase carry with a kettlebell for maybe 30 meters times two. And then he would take five days off and repeat the process. After that year, he then started to retrain his spine. And if you read the book, he came back and squatted nearly 1,200 pounds. He he won the Arnolds the, the, the next two years. But what I did show was the before and after MRI scan. I showed the MRs when he came to see me, which any lay person can see, massive fracture and, and heavily fractured L5, and how those bones remodeled with a bone callousing uh, procedure. So do I do it every time? Of course not. So that's the art and the science. And once in a while, you get the biology and all the tipping points right. And the more you do it, the the better you get at it is all I can really say. So there would be an example of uh, rebuilding a heavily bone compromised uh, strength athlete.
0: Do you find that the... Most frequent cause of injury then is from these heavy compound movements like deadlifts and heavy squats and uh, just just compound movements like that.
1: Well, it all depends. I mean, if you take a rower, if, if you take an athlete who rows, uh, they have they don't get fractures in their uh, backs unless they go crazy on uh, crossing the tipping point with deadlifts in their training. But rowing in of itself, the clustering of disabling injuries that you'll see are, are posterior disc bulges. So it's quite a different clustering clustering because of the change in mechanics it's repeated uh flexion of the spine over and over through load
0: what i found interesting so far throughout the episode is just that it seems like these slight changes whether that be an ergonomic change or you pinpointing some movement that's causing pressure or whatever these slight changes can cause such a profound impact on the rest of the body
1: absolutely can i had one of the strongest athletes in the world uh yesterday uh staying with us And uh, he got off the uh, assessment table and stood up and yelped in pain. And uh, I said, you know, explain that to me. And I measured it. And it was a specific extension posture that he just hit with his low back as he got off the table. And I said, all right, lay down on the table again. Now push your belly out into my fingers, not in, don't suck it in, push it out. And I did it laterally, not forward. And I said, now get up off the table, but don't stand to full upright tall. Okay. Tilt your hips, tilt your hips back just a little bit, and he got off the table absolutely pain-free, and he was astounded, and he said, "That's the first time anyone has." Ever been able to show me with precision the posture and the neural tone or the amount of muscle activation? We call it stiffness because, in a mechanical sense, that's exactly what we were creating. Turns out he has micro movements in his spine. There, his spine is a little bit loose now because of the flattened discs, and he must add a little bit of muscular bracing or guarding, if you will, around that. But, and then, you know, even when he stood up relaxed, he had too much guarding, but he didn't have enough. Guarding when he was moving. So he didn't know how to tune the stiffness with precision to engineer his pain away. But when he left uh, at the end, he said, you don't know the psychological relief you have given me Yeah, to know that they're true something there you've identified it with precision and you've given me such a feeling of empowerment because now I'm in control. He says when I get that pain I know what to do. Yeah these athletes you know there's this discussion on the internet that uh, there's this great psychological dissonance that goes along with pain and injury. And what we have always found is that when you empower the athlete, to take control with a real strategy that they know themselves influences their pain. Psychologically, you've empowered them and all this dissonance disappears. And it's so powerful for them to have a solid plan to go forward with both mentally and uh, physically
0: now I can certainly imagine how empowering it must feel to actually have the, the confidence, the uh, belief that you have something within your arsenal to actually help yourself with an injury because it is so demoralizing when you get something holding you back from being at your peak performance so so I can really imagine the um, psychological benefits of, of having that level of control. Following on from this then I wanted to bring it back to what I was saying earlier about the fact that a few years ago I was doing some heavy deadlifts a lot of heavy squats so I was probably lifting quite uh, egotistically really trying to be you know the lift the heaviest amount as often as possible and that caused I uh, some damage I uh, somewhere along the way whether that be from the volume I was doing or from one set with poor form one day and obviously that knocks you back when you have an injury uh, you don't really want to try uh, certain exercises or certain weights again in the future because it's always playing in the back of your mind mind, that little niggle you had from a while ago. And I still feel like it comes back sometimes today. If I am doing certain exercises, I do feel something. Obviously, it would be great to come to Canada, have a three-hour session with you to really understand what it could have been or what it still is. But is there any way, obviously, without it being too precise, because we can't really uh, have a full analysis via an interview podcast, but is there any exercises you know that could potentially help uh, as a form of rehabilitation for me?
1: Well, to answer your question, it depends on the precise nature of the pain mechanism, just because uh, it's a deadlift, that gives me a pretty good idea. But I, if I assessed you, we would converge with precision what the mm-hmm. real pain driver is. Um, but well, you, you ask me w- w- what exercises. I just gave you an example of a power lifter a few minutes ago who whose real pain mechanism was micro movements from joint instability. So you can consider if you let a little air out of your car tire, it bulges and it gets a bit sloppy on the road that spinal joint was exactly the same and it just needed a bit of stiffening okay. but temporarily we had to use muscular stiffening to control it so there might be an example but the next person let's take a road cyclist who was also doing deadlifts in an effort to create more foundational strength for for the legs and and pelvis and and perhaps the torso if they used cycling form while they were deadlifting chances are the pain might be more from a disc bulge. Chances are, if if I had to predict with with pattern, there would be a posterior disc bulge. What is
0: a cycling form?
1: Flexed over. Okay. So a road racer must flex over the bike frame because their biggest challenge is windage. They have to present as small a frontal area to the wind as possible, otherwise you won't win. But to get a person with a juicy disc bulge, that is their pain mechanism, are usually, not always, but usually flexion intolerant. Well they, that's their sport. they got to get down in deflection so how would you then return that person to uh cycling what we would do is not let them cycle we would build the foundation that they need to eventually return to cycling and it would be basically building a core and i hate that word but everyone knows what i mean (laughs) basically a front the side and the back of their torso and hips and whatnot and and try and create a gristling of the disc around where the bulge is. Get them to practice spine hygiene as we call it throughout the day so they don't sit at their computer all flexed down. They use a lumbar support. They know how to brush their teeth and tie their shoes and get on and off the toilet in a way that doesn't offend the disc bulge. So now you're building training capacity. So there is a whole new concept that is often lost on athletes. Build training capacity by being good to your back the other 23 hours of the day. Now you've just built some pain-free training capacity. But eventually, you want to get them back on the bike. And uh, when we reintegrate an athlete like that, that will tickle the dragon's tail, if you will, in terms of their original pain mechanism, we use a three-day rolling cycle. So... I might say to the athlete, I think it's time to try a bike. Let's not go aggressive with full flexion over the frame, but we'll back off a little bit. We'll do a little bit of ergonomic change to the bike, but you're going to ride the bike for three minutes and then we're going to audit how you feel tomorrow. It's the only way we'll know where that tipping point is today. So uh, they ride the bike for three minutes and then I'll ask them tomorrow, how do you feel? And if they say, I feel fabulous, don't do any more. That's the mistake on that second day. If they're feeling good, what do they do? They go and blow it all up again. but. Yeah. I say, no, that second day was simply an audit day. You must allow a day of biological adaptation. Let the body feel what that previous day did and stimulated. On day three, instead of riding three minutes, we're going to ride six minutes. Now on day four, audit. How do you feel? I feel fabulous. Great. Don't do any more. That is the key to adaptation, force it. Day five comes along, okay, let's ride nine minutes. Day six comes along, So how do you feel? I got a tweak in my back. Good, I just found your biological tipping point. We didn't blow it up by riding for 20 minutes, which is most athletes, that's what they do In the mistake they make, they were greedy and impatient and failed to find out where that tipping point lay in, in, in that particular phase of their rehab. So there's a little bit of a story on, on two different athletes and all, both started with a deadlift, for example, mm-hmm. but we have to take quite different pathways to getting them back to their their passion okay. in life. Yeah. Well, it may, it may be fitness or it may be their livelihood.
0: Yeah, very true. Very true. So if we consider what you've just said about the adaptation method there and we revert back to me wanting to get back to my deadlifts after not having done them for a long time because of this injury I had, if I want to have an actionable plan, should I be starting to do deadlifts, but not very much volume, for example, To and then obviously auditing how I feel. This is obviously if I don't uh, have you, the luxury of having you to uh, give me a uh, full consult- consultation. What really should I be doing if I want to start getting back into these these heavier load exercises?
1: I need to know uh, through an assessment what your pain mechanism is. I will bet that we can find training tools that will create Somewhat of the same and build you stay under the tipping point. Consider this. Why are as a rugby player, do you want to get stronger and slower or do you want to get faster and more able? So I might ask you, let's build a pelvis and a low back and torso on you of iron that you can now explode. 3 steps at a time up a stadium stair. Would that be attractive to you as a rugby player?
0: <laughs> so hey, let me pitch this. So an iron pelvic um,
1: No, no, you're bounding, you're bounding up the stadium stairs where yeah. the audience sit, three stairs at a time, bounding up like a gazelle, one after another, bulletproof with no pain. Is that an attractive athleticism for you as a rugby player yes. to develop? Okay don't do deadlifts. It's the wrong tool. So what I would do with you, I might say to get you out of the painful hole, I'm going to get you to walk three or four times a day. Just short little walks guarantee success. Then I'm going to ask you in those beautiful hills of Newcastle, go to the bottom of one of them and do a monster walk backwards up the hill. Walk backwards up the hill, push through the knee, through the knee, through the knee. Do two cycles of that of 90 meters. Your quads will be absolutely burned out and exhausted. You won't want to do any deadlifts or squats. And I'm going to ask you, go to the bottom of the hill and walk forwards up the hill. And what you will find is your brain has now perceived a burned out quadricep, what it's going to do is activate your glutes. And you will find something going on in the back of your pants that you haven't felt for a while. And you will power up that hill. And all we're doing is playing neurological tricks. But this is some of the interesting nuances to rebuilding an athlete. Because I'm going to ask you a question. And I've done this in quite a number of different sports. My job has been to make them better at their sport and more injury resilient. But every single one of them has come from a dark place with a back injury. Is getting an athlete, athletes stronger with deadlifts, always better. I'm going to t- reveal the experiment. Number one, I've done this with two different volleyball teams. The coach said, can you get them to jump five centimeters higher? So every strength coach would give them a squat training regimen. They might do deadlifts, etc. Yep. Well, out of repeating that experiment twice, what happened was the same result. Half of the team jumped higher, after a, I forget what it was, a six or an eight week squat training regimen. Yeah. 20%. There was no difference. And 30%, they didn't jump as high. Now you can ask yourself what happened. I learned to ask two questions. The first question I asked, and every athlete knows this, are you naturally quick or are you naturally strong as an athlete? And hopefully you're both, but most kids will say one or the other. And, uh, guess which group jumped higher after the squat training programs
0: i would imagine it was the group that said they were more strong so they're more explosive
1: exactly exactly i said you're either quick or you're strong what are you (laughs) if they said they were naturally quick adding strength to a quick explosive neurology gets them to jump higher no question but if you add more strength to a slow grinding strength neurology, you just made them slower. So you've made a stronger, slower athlete, not what you want on the rugby pitch. So do you see when we assess people and and also another question turned out to be, what's the leg length to torso length ratio? So I get the team, would you stand tallest to shortest? And now I want you to everyone sit down. Now arrange yourself from shortest to tallest. You'll find the order changes. What you're identifying is the length of the leg and the lever ratio with their upper body. Now, which ones do better with a front squat or a back squat or a trap bar squat? It's very, very different. Those with short legs do better with a front squat. Those with long legs and shorter body do better with a back squat. So now do you see we're peeling the onion? We're becoming much more precise in organizing. A, does that sport require that specific athleticism? B, does the athlete have it? Now, what breed of dog are they? Are they uh, uh, a mountain cat or are they, you know, the dump truck of dogs, which (laughs) is the, uh, well, a St. Bernard. If you yeah. want to carry a no, cask was, of heavy yeah. load up the Swiss Alps, you won't do it on a greyhound. You better go get yourself a big Bernese mountain dog. or a, But you've got to train them very differently. So does this sort of open uh, up our world a little bit here? <laughs> it
0: definitely does, yeah.
1: But then, you know, when we measure the fabulous athletes, and I've, I've measured a fabulous strength athletes, top fighters, virtually every Olympic sport now over my career. A lot of athletes, when you measure their gifts, they don't test to be that strong? Think of the guys who dominate basketball, world-class soccer. Are they the big deadlifters? Not at all. They are the elastic sprung neurological athletes they have the neurology and they are elastic springs i submit to you that i hope you're training and potentiating the elastic springs
0: and that's something i know i'm definitely not doing enough of and after this i'll make sure i pay more attention to it so what should one leading on from that then be doing to train elasticity is that to do more with stretching Uh, are there some good stretches to do to make sure you're you're training this elasticity that's necessary or are there other plyometric exercises for example what would you have people do
1: isn't it interesting when you pick up a manual on fitness training or physiology or whatever they usually have a a chapter on stretching and usually the chapter talks about increasing the range of motion okay i have found this is detrimental to high performance athletics let me ask you a question Is the best power lifter the one with the most elongated hamstring muscles? No, the strongest hamstring is the stiffest hamstring if you're deadlifting. If you're wanting to win a marathon, do you want to run on muscle? So you can do the runner's stretch, stretch out the Achilles tendon before you start your marathon. So now you must run on muscle. Or do you want to be a bunny rabbit or a kangaroo and just bounce off a spring? Because when we measure those sprung athletes, they use so much less muscle activity for concentric, eccentric footfall, concentric push off through the foot. Rather, they just add a little bit of background tone, if you want to use that word, to the muscle to potentiate the spring. Now they just bounce along the ground. It's fabulous with just a very efficient muscle pulse. I've just given you two reasons why stretching now, we never use stretching as a willy-nilly way to increase the range of motion as a generalization. We use it to tune stiffness. So if you want to hit harder as a boxer, I hope you jump rope. I hope you... Make yourself into a pogo stick and you just boing, boing, boing off the ground, learning to create that stiffness so that when you turn your hips, the body is stiffened and then the arm as the shoulders turn, the arm flies out. And then at the instant of contact, you turn your body to stone once again and the fist goes through the opponent i've measured it those are the ones who hit the hardest they don't look very strong the ones with big muscles push their punches they throw marshmallows so you know i've I've given you some some specific stretches there now on occasion pain does horrible things to the neurology of a person sometimes a joint doesn't have sufficient range of motion so say a hip is blocked up within sufficient range of motion where does the athlete have to move they move in their spine they end up getting motion-driven back pain. So unleashing the hip joint, if possible, through a stretching regimen might be a very clever thing to do. But we did an experiment. We did it several times, actually, where we gave stiff-hipped hockey players more motion in their hip. A beautiful three-dimensional PNF-based stretching program. We took them from, I think it was a fifth percentile of hip mobility through to a 70th. Enormous mobility change. Do you think they used it? not on your life. Do you know when you <laughs> when, when when you see someone from far away and you can't quite see their facial features, but you can see them moving and you know who it is by their characteristic movement signature? Do you know yep. what I mean by that? Yep. Okay. So we all have characteristic signatures. Just because you stretch an athlete and change their range of motion, do you think they're changing their movement signature? Movement. The answer is not. I've right. done the experiment. What you must do is create a new default engram or muscle memory of that movement, and that requires motor reprogramming, not more stretching. So it's really interesting how you can affect movement. Sometimes stretching will help, but it must almost always be followed up with a new motor program. And you create motor programs, as you know, as an athlete, by repeating a similar program over and over again. You speed it up, you add load to it, you densify it as a representation in the brain and all the rest of it. So, you know there's wheels within wheels within wheels on all of this to, to to build an athlete to pull the maximum potential out of a person's body is you're tuning an f1 race car
0: yeah definitely and that's what i'm learning as we continue this conversation just how much um consideration goes into creating top level athletes training program or training regiment found it really interesting as well about the the stiffness to do with uh boxes punching as well just really understanding the level of care that goes into a top level athlete is something i don't think many of us really consider or understand yeah
1: I, I have to be with an athlete for at least a couple of days before i even start to understand their athleticism why they're in pain and where the potential lies and how we're going to train it you know to think that someone can get yeah. it from a 15 minute doctor's appointment why do they have ankle pain why is their back pain there
0: yeah it's not yeah.
1: possible so when you get paid for efficacy you have to take the time
0: yeah you can certainly see why or start to realize that a 15 minute session really just isn't going to cut it to a tree really pinpoint or understand what what's the, the source of pain is and how to alleviate it. Just going back to, again, what we were talking about uh, with elasticity and stiffness and boxing, let's put it in the context of me playing rugby. If I want to, to produce a greater impact if I'm making a tackle, for example, same goes for American football. If they want to hit back their opposition, drive them so their, so their own team gets on the front foot, what really needs to happen here? Is this something within the training regiment, or is this something to do with the elasticity and stiffness? Here, you
1: want to knock. knock them back out of you position and knock- take them back, so
0: you, you take them take them back out to play and obviously you get your your team on the, the front foot
1: okay the some of the people when i get uh, professional athletes and obviously i spend time with them I, i'll say to them who did you hate to play against who are the real nasty ones and it's interesting they don't often name the guys who are the big strong fellas in ice hockey for example, you may have heard of Canadian ice hockey. Yep. I'll say to some of the old veterans, who, who, who they weren't dirty players, but who did you hate to play against? And it's funny how they keep naming the same players. There was a fellow who played for Edmonton, Mark Messier, a brilliant hockey player. You didn't mess with him because it was like hitting a concrete wall. He wasn't a big man, but what he was able to do was when he hit you, he turned his body to stone. So if you, you were both on Skype and we can see one another, but it's a neurological flash. <laughs> Stone when I've measured some top fighters in the UFC when they hit you They're very loose the arm flies through the air with looseness, but when they hit you boom, it's a stiffness So they don't hit you with the weight of their fist. They hit you with 177 pounds of God-fearing stone (laughs) If you're a welterweight, so in US football I've had a few guys say there was a player named Jack Tatum, Boy, not a big man. He was a little defensive mat back, but when he hit you, it was the worst hit in their career. So now you're asking me as a rugby player, what can you do? Should you be bounding and all this kind of thing? I'm going to give you what defined the two men I just named by name, neurology, neurology. So you learn to hit with a pulse. So next time you're standing, waiting for the bus, relax and then turn your body to stone on and off as quick as you can. Watch. <laughs> did you see what I did? Yeah, yeah. Good. Do that. No. And don't, don't let the guys in the white coats come and take you away. <laughs> but there is an example where you're training impact stiffness on and off as quick as you can. Now, how many cycles can you do that? Two or three, and then you train slowness in your brain. So when you're training that neurology, you don't train three times a week. You train two or three times a day because you only have three cracks at it to retrain on off. And then uh, because I'm a spine person, I would then create more spine and torso stiffness. Now learn on top of that stiffness and home base proximal stability, we call it, or creating effective mass. I want you to pulse your limbs within that effective mass. Now, I don't know what you weigh, but I'm looking at you. I'm going to say 85 kilo. Am I roughly close?
0: higher. You know, nine,
1: higher. Nine, nine, 95 kilo?
0: Yeah, like 95
1: kilos, yeah. Okay, so 95 kilo. I want you to hit that person with 95 kilos of effective mass granite. So you learn that through neurology. I don't think you're going to learn that by doing deadlifts or or whatever. Um, you okay. might learn it through through skipping rope. And just learning that pogo movement. The only place you're going to move is through your ankle joint. Now, the rest of your body stays stiff. And then you start to loosen up and flow. Dance around if you're a fighter. But when you punch, you have that neurology of that flash of stone. So there's the mechanic, if you will, of hitting hard.
0: That was really interesting. I did never... Thoughts that it would come down to neurology really
1: well it's the same go go measure the guy who can kick a, a football a soccer ball down the length of the field they hardly kick it at all yeah, what they true, do? Very they, true. Yeah. oh yeah they, the guys with the big leg swings they're kicking marshmallows but the guys who can kick they hardly move their leg at all but they have that beautiful core proximal stiffness and then that stiffness radiates out from the stance leg planted in the ground it's a little bit of a slingshot into stiffness they hit the ball and the ball just goes so impressively so there's there's another kind of impact anyway i can go on ad nauseum on all of this if you want but <laughs>
0: no, it's, it's very interesting and, and just you relating obviously to players like uh, tatum you said in american football i don't then i thought of an example in rugby johnny wilkinson who i'm sure you will have heard of as well potentially well the,
1: think of bruce lee's one inch punch
0: yeah precisely so uh. what,
1: yeah I've, I've trained several people how to uh, achieve that and it's wonderful to take a small woman who will put a big 95 kilo rugby player through the wall what what you are learning is just to dip your shoulder just a little bit and take your shoulder Into a 120 kilo heavy bag, just move your shoulder and make that bag fly. Now you've just taken your shoulder, you've just popped it. Now you're learning how to hit.
0: That's fascinating. That is fascinating.
1: You Um, should come and stay at our place for a while.
0: I I would love to. I would love to. I can have conversations about this for ages. I mean, the pinnacle of my rugby career was a few years ago. I was playing six, seven times a week. Uh, Really into it, obviously gym sessions, everything like that. So it would have been great to have a conversation with you then and see what have seen what we could do. But since then, I have. uh, um, Stop playing less competitively, and now it's more social. And I do a lot of gym work and to try and build my strength up. I could definitely do well,
1: it. Be, be, be careful what you wish for there. Why don't you do your weightlifting to be a better athlete? So, now, sure. I'm I'm going to give you one other little thought here. You're looking at a fella in his mid 60s with hip replacement and uh, a whole litany of injuries. My advice to you is look after your joints. Yeah. And be a bit more modest now in your athletic training. Of course, you want to be a great rugby player, but think of some of the thoughts I'm talking about here. And I think you'll find some great efficiencies in your training and you will get more athleticism with less training. And the less training you do means you will hold on to your athleticism for more years of your life.
0: Definitely something to, to keep focused on just making sure my body doesn't uh, give in too early. I am one of those people though, that likes to do some form of exercise every day, even though I know sometimes it's counterintuitive because I need to let the body heal and rest up. Well,
1: I'm not saying don't do something every day, but I'm saying doing the right thing in the right volume yeah. will make you a better athlete now and it'll allow you to hold on to that athleticism for more
0: years. Yeah, most definitely. So Stuart, I've obviously seen that on your website you have loads of really useful guides and resources for people to find out more about the anatomy and obviously alleviating pain and spinal rehabilitation and everything like that. And obviously this podcast has been a bundle of knowledge on what makes a top level athlete what or the the amount of precision that goes into pinpointing where an injury or uh, has derived from so if you want to direct the audience Stuart, to it to Uh, your website where they can find your your books and all these resources that would be great i'm sure there's a lot of people who'd be really interested in finding out more
1: well uh, unfortunately i'm not a social media person however we do have a website it's called backfit pro just as it sounds backfitpro.com where i have my textbooks i've written books for lay public people with back pain not athletes just the lay public i've written books for coaches and athletes ultimate back fitness and performance gift of injury with brian carroll to document the medical process of restoring a strength athlete. And I wrote a book for doctors called Low Back Disorders. And it's a very heavy, slow, very cumbersome read but it is the scientific story of the uh, of the journey. But that's at backfitpro.com. And a, a few of those books, I believe, are on amazon.co.uk in, in, in your country. But um, we, we also have some clinicians uh, trained around the world. I have one uh, that's in London, England, who uh, does fabulously well with the uh, British folks that uh, go to London and, and see them that are struggling with back pain and they're getting frustrated.
0: Well, hopefully I won't have to go and see the London clinician in the future. But uh, a massive thank you, Stuart, That was really insightful. I learned a lot there. And honestly, I had no real idea about how spinal function worked, you know, how to rehab injuries if you get anything, how even micro movements can help alleviate pain and so on. So thank you very much for giving up your time to talk to us. So that concludes today's episode of 20 Minute Fitness. If you do want to find out more about Stuart's work, then definitely go and check out his website at backfitpro.com. That's all for now, and we'll see you soon.